That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hello, good friends. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod and welcome to this week's Reporters Roundtable. Coming to you a day earlier this week on this Thursday morning, September 1st, about 8.30 a.m. in our nation's capital. Later today, a Florida judge will decide whether or not to appoint a special master to sort through all the documents seized at Mar-a-Lago. But that decision might have been rendered moot this week earlier when the FBI announced it had already plowed through boxes of documents and found um, maybe twice as many classified documents as the Trump lawyers originally indicated. Whatever the judge decides for Donald Trump, document gate is not going away. Meanwhile, Joe Biden's out on the road attacking MAGA Republicans for attacking the FBI. And some breaking political news. Just last night, we learned that up in Alaska, that special election to uh, fill the seat of uh, Donald Young has been filled by a Democrat, Mary Peltola, which means Sarah Palin, even with Trump's endorsement, did not win. So what does it all mean? Where is it all heading? For insights today, we turn to our panel. Niall Stanage, columnist for The Hill and political analyst for New Nation AM. Niall, welcome back. Good to talk to you. Good to be here, Bill. Abby Livingston is a writer with the Almanac of American Politics. Hi, Abby. Good to have you on board. Glad to be here. And Jeff Dufer, editor-in-chief of the National Journal. Hello, Jeff. Good morning, Bill. So, uh, Jeff, uh, Sarah Palin, the big comeback kid, didn't work. Um, What does this mean? Are we maybe going to make too much of the fact that uh, Trump's candidate loses in Alaska? Well, the big X factor here is the the ranked choice voting that they use, which is relatively novel in American politics. Um, As Dave Wasserman has pointed out, since the Dobbs decision on abortion was handed down, Democrats had overperformed in all four special elections since. Um, This makes five. uh, And Peltola is now the first Democrat elected to the House from Alaska since um, 1972 when Nick Begich, um, interesting footnote, his son was one of the also-rans in this election. Uh, But Nick Begich died in a plane crash in 1972 before Don Young was elected. That was the last time... uh, that Alaska had a, a Democratic House member. Um, so this is uh, this is an upset, um, and it continues uh, Democrats' at least modest winning streak after after Dobbs. Um, but again, as I say, the, the, the ranked choice system, which a, a, a lot of people, myself included, think that there might be some advantages here for uh, for American politics in general because it tends to, to filter out the... Uh, the, the more extreme candidates, and it tends to to reward candidates who play to the center. Um, so, in 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 the grand scheme of things, this 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 could be a, a good development. But I don't want to read too much into Alaska, given that <laughs> given that you know it's a it's an outlier state to begin with, 
And it's and the system it uses is definitely an outlier in American politics. So I, I don't think we can draw too many conclusions from here uh, versus what's going to happen in, in November. But Abby, everybody is looking to all of these uh, special elections or even regular primaries around the country to see what the Trump endorsement means, right? Whether that's the magic ticket that people, that Republicans need to win. Uh, we've seen in several cases, and this is the latest one, where the Trump endorsement hasn't uh, done the trick. What do we make of that? Well, I think, you know, I cover a lot of special elections and um, and primaries, and I think we're still learning through this. It has been the golden ticket in the primary, but most of these primaries have wound down over the course of August, and now we're heading into the midterm. And this has been a catastrophic August for Donald Trump, and it appears his political standing. I, I will have to say the midterms, this is the strangest midterm cycle I have ever seen. Usually things get baked in in the August before the fall, and this is as unstable as I've ever seen it coming out of Labor Day. Wow. Yeah. Uh, now, how do you read it? Um, and I particularly like your take on what Jeff was saying about ranked choice voting. You know, they've been using this in San Francisco, a couple of other cities. Um, is this something you think is going to catch on and be picked up by more and more um, uh, states or cities? I think there are two separate questions there, Bill. One is is ranked choice voting a good thing? And the other <laughs> one is, is it going to catch on? I, I do think that there are a number of arguments that can be made in its favor, and, and Jeff has alluded to at least one of them. Ranked choice voting, its big advantage is it favors the least unpopular candidate. In other words, it's a way to try to get the most widely acceptable candidate elected. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as Jeff noted, that that tends to militate against extreme figures. Now, whether it catches on, that seems to me a very different question. I mean, I'm not seeing any uh, groundswell, you know, generally yeah. for changing um, changing elections in that fashion. It, I mean, I wonder if you asked me partly because of my accent or nation of origin. <laughs> it is it is a more common way of conducting elections in <laughs> Europe, I would say. Um, and that probably disadvantages it in terms of it ever catching on here because we wouldn't like to, after all, copy the Europeans and very much. Okay, well, let's come back to the 800-pound gorilla of the week of the last three weeks. Uh, Abby mentioned this has not been a particularly uh, positive August for uh, former President Donald Trump. Uh, and people were reminded that the, the issue, of course, is how you handle classified documents. And we were all reminded this week that this is an issue that Donald Trump, as candidate in 2016, said he was going to take very seriously. Here he is. In my administration, I'm going to enforce all laws concerning the protection of classified information. No one will be above the law. Ah, those words are very meaningful. Abby, it seems to me this whole issue is being conducted on two fronts, the public relations front and the legal front, the whole question of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, who's winning, Abby, so far? Well, on the legal front, it appears DOJ is um, in the sense of what they're filing and just the mere fact that the former president is struggling to obtain and keep legal counsel and also to prevent his lawyers from becoming witnesses in a potential 
alleged crime. And um, I think early on, there was widespread belief that Trump was winning this public relations battle. He was having the the argument to himself because the Department of Justice does not like to comment on things. They, as the attorney general said, want their filings to speak for themselves. Um, but when a filing is dropped just before midnight on a you know, school night, and we are still talking about the photos involved in it, which we've all seen with the the classified documents. Um, I, I, it just seems like the the filings are speaking far louder than President Trump and his allies evolving explanations for what is going on. Jeff, it looks like that with this um, uh, request for a special master, that the Trump lawyers may have given the DOJ a huge opening to yeah, make the case. I, I, I go back to this this. This term that I, I never knew until the Mueller investigation, uh, the term is speaking indictment. Uh, <laughs> when when the, the the department essentially lays out the case of an indictment in the course of a of, of a motion to a judge, and that's what it sounds like is 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 going on here. I mean, if you just look at some of the language that they've that they've used, uh, quote. Records were likely concealed and removed from the storage room and that efforts were likely taken to obstruct the government's investigation. Um, the FBI, in a matter of hours, recovered twice as many documents with classification mm-hmm. markings as, quote unquote, the diligent search that the former president's counsel and other representatives had weeks to perform calls into serious question the representations made in the June 3rd certification, blah, blah, blah. Uh, the, the, the motion is, is, is peppered with, these, with this kind of phrasing. Um, and I, I, I just question whether he's getting, uh, whether Trump's legal team, uh, maybe leaves something to be desired. Uh, let's, let's put it that way. Um, in the, in the filing last night, when they were, they responded to what the DOJ said, um, one of the arguments they made was this, uh, this discovery of classified information was to be fully anticipated given the very nature of presidential records. Uh, simply put, the notion that presidential records would contain sensitive information should have never been cause for alarm. Well, sure, uh, presidential records are, uh, of course, going to, cl- going to contain classified information. The difference is that such records are generally not held in a storage locker in a social club <laughs> in Florida. This is it, it. It almost it almost begs to be shot down by a judge. I mean, it's the it's the kind of thing that that it's the kind of argument that tends to work very very well on cable news, but it's not going to work very well on a federal judge. Uh, and Niall, uh, with all the language and some of which Jeff has just cited, the part of the Department of Justice filing that got the most attention, given that we are a television society, right, is the photograph of these documents, uh, which the FBI had found in the boxes, and then, uh, which, as I've read, is routine for investigators when they get evidence. They take photos of the evidence, which can later be used uh, if any charges are filed. So they spread out on the floor some of these documents, and they're clearly um, classified documents and top-secret documents that they found after they'd been told that there were no classified documents left at Mar-a-Lago. That photo... Um, was pretty powerful, wasn't it? Yes, um, every picture is worth a thousand words, as they say. <laughs> there you go, right. Probably more than a thousand words in this case, certainly given the heavy circulation that that photo immediately went into um, on cable news, as you say. And, you know, any image 
is, I think, more powerful than just people reading, you know, an indictment or reading news reports about, sorry, I shouldn't say an indictment, um, court filings, things of that nature. Um, So in general, I think that that photo was important, not just because it showed the classified information, but because, of course, right beside it in a sort of carton, cardboard box, really, was a, a framed uh, photo of a Time magazine cover, a Trump-related <laughs> Time magazine cover. Now, we should say, in all fairness, that the former president is adamant that the FBI arranged the photo in that way, um, not specifically relating to the Time cover, I mean, but had had spread out the documents in the way that we all saw. Uh, that may or may not be the case, but certainly the image or the sense that it created was of extremely haphazard uh, storage of extremely high-level secret documents. And that in itself is damning. Now, the former president will obviously have the chance to try to rebut that. Uh, but it is uh, that, that was a very powerful photo. So uh, I've been interested also, uh, we all have, in the reaction of Republican leaders, uh, uh, both in Congress and around the country, uh, to the events at uh, Mar-a-Lago and the information as it's been unfolding. Uh, here, for example, um, Governor Christy Nome from South Dakota, let's play these uh, back-to-back, Jay, if we can, and Ken Buck, congressman from uh, Colorado, Republican congressman from Colorado, uh, taking different attacks, but both coming to the defense of the former president. I don't know if the DOJ and FBI can be trusted to tell us what was in there. That's that's the thing. You can see folders. You can see big words on on the, do we know that that right. is really what President Trump brought to his right. home? Uh, do we know that he put them there? Do we know what's inside? Mm-hmm. I understand uh, that that former presidents, former secretary of states may very well have classified information. He may be writing a memoir. He may be writing uh, an autobiography. Uh, and uh, the fact that he had documents in and of itself isn't a, a concern. Abby, Donald Trump writing a memoir? You know, it's, it has been pointed out that the trouble uh, General Petraeus got in was involved in, you know, producing a book as well. These these are not valid excuses in a court of law, but because of the nature of the media, which we all know and talk about and obsess about, these statements go out into the ether without, you know, pushback. And it really just chips away bit by bit at the credibility of federal law enforcement. And they're said in tones that, um, you know, make it sound like this is an authoritative point of view. And this is just absolutely not how top secret documents are handled in the federal government. And so I think we're having to go through an education process with the public, but whether or not they hear that is, um, you know, a a point of concern. And I mean, this is just escalating rhetoric that, could become potentially dangerous. But Jeff, have it in fact some Republicans kind of, uh, if not backed down, at least quieted down the more information that comes out from the Department of Justice? Yeah, I, I, I was struck how loudly and how vociferously a lot of Republicans uh, reacted to the initial search back on, what was it, August 8th, and in the week since, or in the week following, uh, versus what they're saying now, which is comparatively little, and only when asked and and pressed really by by reporters, uh, and that just makes the, I mean, this this inf- has to infuriate Mitch McConnell, 
Um, because it, it, it makes the fall less a referendum on Joe Biden and more of a referendum on, on Trumpism. Uh, McConnell in particular has tried to finesse the whole Trump thing for six years now, and he hasn't done a bad job of it really. Um, but now he's got not only four or five Trumpist candidates who might cost him the Senate, he's also got this never ending stream of, of Trump malfeasance that nobody wants to talk about, but that he and all of his Senate colleagues and candidates uh, are going to be asked about for the next three months, uh, whether they want to or not. And clearly they don't. Right. So now your, your take on that, I think what Jeff makes the point that no matter how badly Republicans may want to talk about the price of gas or the price of groceries, right? Um, even if there's a special master appointed today, this issue is not going to go away. Uh, and it does really impact, it will definitely impact the midterms and make it more of a referendum on Trump than Republicans want. Do you agree now? I agree that it certainly is not going away and it is certainly something that Republicans don't want to talk about. It's also something that President Biden is, I would say, newly eager to talk about, not, be <laughs> not because of events at Mar-a-Lago necessarily, yeah. just because we're getting into the real uh, key stretch of the midterm elections. Obviously, uh, President Biden has been talking in much more um, frontally aggressive terms about President Trump and the G former President Trump and the GOP's ties to him, ultra MAGA Republicans and comments like that. The, the other one about uh, elements of the Republican ideology being semi-fascist. And um, on Thursday night, of course, he's due to give this speech in Philadelphia about the battle for the mm -hmm. soul of the nation. So you put all that together and it's clear that President Biden is uh, moving toward, as, as we say, in D.C. circles, trying to make this a choice election rather than a referendum election. In other words, not a have Democrats done well or not so well, but are Democrats better or worse than Republicans? Yeah. And President Biden hoping to make Republicans synonymous with former President Trump. Uh, that moves is exactly where I wanted to go next here, uh, uh, picking up uh, this morning your comment and this morning's headline in the New York Times Biden shifts from compromise to combat. Um, we'll pick up there with our panel here after a quick break on the Bill Press Pod. Uh, today's panelist from The Hill, Niall Stanage, National Journals, Jeff Dufour, and from the Almanac of American Politics, Abby Livingston. The Bill Press Pod. Quick break, and we'll be right back. And today's roundtable on the Bill Press Pod brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, a great men and women of the UFCW, about a million strong under the leadership of President Mark Perrone. They're the good people that give us such great service at our big retail stores, uh, the our great grocery chains, chemical plants, and the meat processing and poultry processing plants across the country, as well as our cannabis plants, I might add. We salute the members of the UFCW, thank them for their great work, and thank them particularly for their support of the Bill Press Pod. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, 
We think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. We're back with today's roundtable and today's panel. Abby Livingston joining us from the Almanac of American Politics. Jeff Dufer, Editor-in-Chief, National Journal, and Niall Stanage, columnist for The Hill and also political analyst for New Nation AM. Uh, President Biden was in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. Uh, he's going back to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania later today. He'll be out in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, marching for a Labor Day parade. He is on the road and his message, as we heard first up in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, he is lashing out at Republicans who he says are basically anti-law enforcement. Here is the president just the other night in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. So let me say this to my MAGA Republican friends in Congress. Don't tell me you support law enforcement if you won't condemn what happened on the 6th. Don't tell me. Can't do it. For God's sake, whose side are you on? You can't be pro-law enforcement and pro-insurrection. You can't be a party of law and order and call the people who attacked the police on January 6th patriots. You can't do it. And now it's sickening to see the new attacks on the FBI threatening life of law enforcement agents and their families for simply carrying out the law and doing their job. I want to say this as clear as I can. There's no place in this country, no place, for endangering the lives of law enforcement. No place. I'm opposed to defunding the police. I'm also opposed to defunding the FBI. Uh, so, Jeff, this is a Biden unlike we have, we've seen before. It's a, as you said before the break, it's a bit more combative version of Biden. But I think this is also a, a, a pretty adroit a, a politically uh, line mm-hmm. of argument that he's that he's found um, half less than half of the country really uh, really the, the MAGA base is going to be offended especially when he trots out terms like semi-fascist um, and then it reminds me of Hillary Clinton's deplorables comment you know mm-hmm. where where you've got a chunk of the country is going to be mortally offended and the other half of the country is going to shrug and say, yeah, sounds about right to me. <laughs> um, I, I, so I'm not sure that this is a problem for him politically. The only voters who are really put off by this are the ones who hate Biden to begin with and would never vote for him or vote for a Democrat this fall. Um, 
it doesn't really feel like the kind of thing that's gonna that's gonna offend independence. Um, but it is the kind of thing that 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 might get independence to to stand up and and take notice. And Biden's approval numbers have moved uh, up thanks largely to independence. You know, he's gone up from. 38, uh, 38 average approval to about 42. And that's been fueled largely by by independence. And I think this is a, a, a line of attack and a line of argument uh, that can continue to play to them. Right. Uh, and Niall, this is an argument. I mean, the semi-fascism, okay, let's consider that um, maybe a, a, somewhat of a gaffe, maybe, uh, although it may not, as Jeff pointed out, hurt him at all with independents and, and Democrats. But this message, basic message that you can't be pro-law enforcement and without condemning what happened on January 6th, it seems to me now that's a message that does resonate with most Americans. Yes, I think that is a powerful message and potentially at least a politically effective one because it goes to at least two things. One is the idea propagated by former President Trump and his supporters that they can somehow be both uh, simultaneously pro-law enforcement and at the very least uh, tacitly sympathetic to what happened on January the 6th. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, the former president was the first president in American history to be twice impeached, and the second of those impeachments was because of his role in inciting the event on January the 6th. So for him to turn around and position himself as an adamant defender of law enforcement seems pretty difficult when those two things are put in juxtaposition. The other element of the politics of this bill that I think is worth mentioning, even though President Biden more or less said it explicitly himself in the clip you played, is this uh, the, these kind of statements or these kind of speeches from the current president being a way to inure him and his party from attacks using the defund the police um, mm -hmm. trope mm -hmm. um, to, to just be straight out about a, a personal opinion. I think defund the police is a terrible slogan in terms of its political effectiveness. I'm not denying at all that there are um, racial injustices in policing, but it's politically a horrendous slogan. And uh, so I think that that's why uh, President Biden is making those remarks to try to uh, neutralize the potential damage from that and also do a bit of jujitsu and get on the offense against Republicans on that issue. Uh, and Abby, we're told that the president tonight is going to be uh, addressing uh, and rolling out another line of argument for Democrats this fall, which is that our basic democracy itself is what is on the line uh, in uh, in the midterm elections. Uh, we're told that's going to be his message tonight in Philadelphia. Um, what can we expect to hear from the president? Again, a direct attack on Republicans for undermining democracy, or what do you expect? The thing I expect, maybe just less specific, but he just seems to kind of be having fun in a way he hasn't. I don't know if you can put fun in the same context as worrying about the future of democracy, but it does seem like Joe Biden is starting to get his footing <laughs> uh, rhetorically in a way. I mean, the first year of his presidency was so somber with COVID and then the Afghanistan withdrawal just just unwound everything. And I think part of it is the biggest help he's gotten this summer has been from Liz Cheney and Nancy Pelosi through 
this committee. And this was, you know, I, I, I felt very deeply about the insurrection. It's where I worked for 15 years. Um, and I, you know, people outside of Washington would frequently roll their eyes and I would be in disbelief. And, um, it has broken through because of these hearings. And so I think it's an argument he may have more of an audience for now that schools come back to, you know, returned uh, along those th- lines. So I- I'm, I'm very intrigued where this is going because it, this was not an argument that was perceived to be politically uh, viable, you know, four or five months ago. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Uh, by the way, I just uh, a footnote here. I noticed, I read this morning that Quinnipiac's latest poll um, they asked the question, uh, do you agree that the nation's democracy is in danger of collapse? And what's interesting is that 69% of Americans agreed, 69% of Democrats agreed, and 69% of Republicans agreed, although I think maybe the definition of the democ- democracy being in danger is a little different among Democrats and Republicans, but I thought that was an interesting statistic. Uh, I want to ask you uh, all about a couple, all about two issues and what you think their impact are going to be from what we've seen on the midterms. Uh, Jeff, let's start with student loans. Mm. Uh, Biden had promised this. He, uh, he delivered more than he had actually promised. Uh, Republicans who had supported uh, forgiving student loans when Donald Trump <laughs> proposed it uh, came out against it and called it, this is just uh, welfare for the uh, rich kids from Harvard. And uh, yeah, are they missing the boat on this? Is this a going to be a popular issue, uh, particularly among young voters in the midterms? Um, young voters, yes. Um, and maybe it helps with turnout, but these are largely voters who are uh, sympathetic to Democrats to begin with. Um, back to my earlier point about independence, I think this perhaps cuts the opposite way with with independence. I, I think you have to look no further than the centrist Democrats' reaction to this. Um, almost anyone in a competitive race threw cold water on this. Uh, Catherine Cortez Masto, Tim Ryan, Jared Golden, Chris Pappas. Um, about the about the best they got was Alyssa Slotkin from Michigan, who said. Okay, fine. We'll take this, but it doesn't really uh, affect the. It doesn't affect the the real root causes of of tuition, uh, the skyrocketing tuition, and 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 we should do a better job in in fixing that. Um, I don't want to oversimplify it too much, but it seemed like Biden really got in trouble last year when he he seemed to, as the conventional wisdom states, uh, overstepped his mandate and and started listening to the left a little bit too much. Uh, he gets back on track this summer and and has a and has a huge winning streak when he tacks a little bit more to the center. And then he gets a, a little bit, he starts feeling good again. And what happens? Well, Schumer and and the and and the progressives in the house uh, push him on on student loans, and he's he starts to take a lot of flack from that. Um, so I, I think he's still does the best uh, and, and has has the best record of success when he when he hews a little bit more toward toward the center than he has here. Uh, Niall, I, I don't understand how a program that provide that gives 40 some 43 million Americans either ten thousand dollars or twenty thousand dollars depending on their um, their economic status um, uh, certainly includes a lot of Republicans, not just Democrats, why this is not a more popular issue. 
I think Republicans would say it's not a more popular issue because that number, large though it is, is smaller than the number of Americans who don't go to college. And the political argument is that the people who don't go to college are paying for the people who do. Um, I am legitimately uncertain as to the political efficacy of this move. I can see the plus side for Biden in terms of energizing younger voters in, in particular, although obviously, you know, many people who are not particularly young still have student debts that will be wiped out. But young voters obviously tend to be democratic and also tend to be not the most reliable voting bloc in midterm elections in particular. Um, but I can also see the possibility of the Republican argument getting some traction. And um, one thing I, I will say, Bill, just as a very general point, is that I do find it a little bit uh, dispiriting that this debate isn't uh, taking a sort of a bigger picture, which to my mind, the bigger picture would be that the United States is in serious global competition with lots of other big and small nations. And in that competition, it would seem to me fairly obvious that lowering barriers to education would be better for the nation than keeping them high. Now, I understand that there are very specific arguments about this particular policy, but, uh, you know, incentivizing people to educate themselves to the highest level they feel inclined to do seems a pretty unambiguously good thing to me, even though I acknowledge it's uh, it has politically um, mixed effects likely. Uh, that sounds to me like a good column for the Hill, uh, Niall. I, <laughs> you may, Excellent. Glad, glad I got something something you, out of this. You, you may have to you may have to educate all of us uh, <laughs> on, on that point. And of course, the other issue uh, per, after the Supreme Court Dobbs decision, uh, Abby, is the issue of abor abortion. We saw that that could have been what provided an upset in the special election up in New York's 19th congressional district last week where Pat Ryan, the Democrat, pulled off an upset, um, mainly riding on that issue. And we've also seen uh, across the nation some Republicans uh, seeing what happened last week in the primaries, backing down from their 100% pro-life position. Uh, will this issue be the issue that drives turnout, particularly among women voters? Abby, what are we seeing? I think we're seeing very strong indications that will be the case. Um, just a few weeks before the Dobbs decision, uh, Democrats got whacked pretty good in a South Texas special election. They didn't really even bother to compete. It was a seat that um, held by a Democrat and a Republican won, and this was long-held Democratic traditional territory. And then fast forward just a few months, you see the Kansas referendum, you see the New York special, you see this Alaska special, and there are very strong indicators of this. Um, I, I think that the political class and myself very much included, we've become numb to the political impact of things like this and sort of shrug and move on in the world after a couple of days uh, moves on. But I, I think this one has really changed the, 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 what we're seeing play out as we go into the fall. And we'll continue to uh, through the midterms, you believe? I think so. I think what we're seeing, um, there's a very good Democratic strategist named Tom Bonnier, who it really gets into the numbers. And what he talks about is voter registration. And he is seeing lots of young women registering to vote. Midterms are not elections where young people typically turn out. That's why I think this is very unstable. 
And here we are coming into Labor Day weekend, which is officially the kickoff of the midterm elections, although uh, uh, today's panelists uh, and I would be the first ones to agree that we hardly waited till Labor Day this year to get <laughs> to get started uh, in 100 percent political news. A great rundown of the news of the week. Congress is back in session uh, next week, and uh, we will uh, pick up from there. Uh, in the meantime, a big thanks to today's panelists, Niall Stanage, Jeff Dufour, and Abby Livingston. But before we let you guys go into the weekend, uh, we always uh, like to ask you, what was the one story of the week that really caught your attention uh, on top of everything else that you were covering that sort of stopped you in your tracks for a moment? Uh, Jeff, start us off. What caught your attention this week? Well... This one is pretty stupid. I'm sorry, <laughs> but works. but it's appropriate going into Labor Day, uh, a weekend when people eat hot dogs oh, and they and they yes. eat ice cream. Yeah. So why not hot dog flavored ice cream? Oh no. Oh yes. Oh yes. Not Ben and Jerry's. Nope. The folks <laughs> the folks at Oscar Mayer have co- <laughs> have have collaborated with the Pop Bar chain to bring us. A hot dog flavored ice cream treat on a stick. Oh God! According, according to Food and Wine magazine, it is based on uh, hot dog tinged gelato, quote unquote, boasting both refreshing and smoky umami notes. Um, uh, and that and that uh, uh, those who imbibe will be treated to the familiar and delicious notes of Oscar Mayer's hickory smoked <laughs> hot dogs, tomato, onion, and more. Uh, uh, so yeah. <laughs> what I want to know is, uh, given the debate over whether a hot dog is a sandwich, is a, <laughs> is a frozen hot dog, therefore, an ice cream sandwich? Oh, God. oh no. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I had to. I had to. <laughs> I have to tell you, as a lover of hot dogs, I would go out of my way uh, to get a hot dog, and a lover of ice cream, uh, I personally do not look forward to <laughs> combining nope. the two. Nope. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not going to be in line to get the Oscar Mayer uh, hot dog sandwich. <laughs> oh my God! All right, Niall, can you top that? <laughs> I, I don't think I can top that in the same vein. At least I know that our favorite stories tend to be in the tradition that Jeff has used so well. There are things that are a little bit uh, um, both marginal and funny. But my favorite story of this week was actually a very mainstream big story. And it was Serena Williams. Oh, yes. Um, yes. Who I think lots of people, including me, who are fans of hers, were tuning into her first round match, mainly hoping that she wouldn't be embarrassed. I mean, obviously, she has been struggling yeah. this year. Uh, greatest player of all time, in my view. And she turned it on and won not just, obviously, that first round match, but her second round match in even more emphatic fashion uh, last night, uh, Wednesday evening in New York. And I just think it's an extraordinary story. I'm making no predictions about the rest of the tournament, but to see uh, an athlete as great as that performing so well at the age of uh, 41, I think it's a brilliant story. Uh, It was absolutely so exciting and so inspiring. And as you point out, particularly Wednesday evening after losing the second set, right? And she she came back. She is such a force, and I think the greatest tennis player uh, of all time. Uh, Abby, what caught your attention this week? What uh, your favorite story? 
My favorite story was a viral clip of a Pizza Hut ad from the 90s. And I was in grade school when the Soviet Union collapsed. <laughs> and this was acknowledged amid the death of uh, Mikhail Whoa. Gorbachev. And I, it was a clever commercial. I don't even remember it. But it just laid out geopolitical uh, diplomacy and perceptions in a way that still eerily applies today, but also in a humorous way and honors a very, very decent man. So that was my favorite thing that popped this week. Right. The passing of Mikhail Gorbachev, one of the most certainly influential uh, and instrumental uh, political leaders of the 20th century. Well, I have to tell you, my favorite story, I want to go back to where we started uh, this uh, roundtable, and that is with Alaska. Uh, This is um, a little known fact. You're probably going to hear a lot more of it, but I want to credit uh, David Wasserman, uh, Jeff mentioned him earlier, with the Cook Political Report. Uh, for doing a little homework, and he's reporting that this is big news, that because of Mary Peltola's win in Alaska, first Democrat to represent Alaska since 1972 in the United States Congress, but because Alaska is such a huge, huge state, her win means that the land mass represented by Democrats in the United States Congress has increased by 104%. Democrats now represent 104%, 104% more territory this morning than they did before Mary Peltola won that election to Congress. So that must make Nancy Pelosi very, very happy, uh, all the new land that she <laughs> represents. Uh, another reason it was a good day for uh, Democrats. Uh, and that's it for today's podcast. Again, a great big thank you uh, to today's columnist, uh, today's panelists, I'm sorry, Niall Stanage and Jeff Dufour and Abby Livingston. And a big thank you for joining us here. And now it's uh, your job to go out and have a great, great Labor Day weekend. Enjoy yourselves. Have fun. And then come back and see us on Tuesday for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. Thanks again. We'll see you then.